I've been excited about this week. I moved this over so I step in front if somebody wants to throw something at me because they disagree. You deserve a shot to hit me, don't you think? All right, that's how I feel. He's laughing at it, and that might be a guy that throws something. I like that, okay? Stay with me on this one. This is good. But I come here to say, boy, what a great time last week was, but the series that we're in. But I believe that what God is doing here is very significant. And we're going to continue this and, and talk about this issue. On the, the issue of 40 years in the making is still the series. And again, believing that the, the time of testing, trials, preparation leads to the promise. But the message for today is, is for generations yet to be born. And it's a very significant message. And I, I've told you before, if God isn't speaking this into me, it's probably not going to do much for you either. And this is, this is one of these messages for me that for years and years, God has just been pouring into me in different ways on the impact for generations yet to be born. The big idea for us here today is, is very simple. Whether we agree or totally even comprehend the idea, but our actions, our attitudes, the manner in which we live out our faith will impact generations yet to be born. It's going to happen one way or another. Everything we do is impacting the next generation and then as a result will impact even generations yet to be born. And we're going to tell some great stories about that. You know, when we grasp the magnitude of this, what God is saying to us is the manner in which we live out our faith, where we live, work, and play, God wants us to live lives that will echo in eternity. That's what God wants for us. And that's what God positions us for, and that's what God, I believe, is doing right now. To give us the opportunity to understand how our actions and how we live out our faith can echo in eternity for generations even yet to be born in that process. And God doesn't just suggest this, but He gives us some pretty good commands. And as we celebrate this in this milestone we're in, I believe that God is positioning us, and He has positioned us, and He saw these days coming. And let's just jump into our scripture here. It's Psalm 78, verses 5 through 7. And here's what God tells us here. He says, For he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to our children so the next generation might know them. Even generations, children, yet to be born. He goes on to say this, And they in turn will teach their own children so that each generation should set its hope anew on God. And when he does that, not forgetting his glorious miracles, but obeying his commands. On uh, March 3rd, 1998, my world changed drastically. If you're a grandparent in here, you know that moment that that first grandchild is born. Eliana Blair Castle. A few minutes later, as I was praying a blessing over her with the family there, she had just been born. I felt God pour these scriptures into me. And it was emphasized more when I grasped the magnitude of even her name. Her name is Eliana that comes from two Hebrew words. It's El, El Shaddai. El means God. And Yana is Hebrew for has spoken. So when you put those together, her actual name means God has spoken. And I believe for us as we prayed in that grandchild, but then he spoke to me with these scriptures and this 
the weightiness of thinking now not just with my children, but with grandchildren and what God was commanding me to do, and then reading this for even generations yet to be born was significant, to say the least. And I look at these as my legacy scriptures. And this, going back to what we said last week, that, you know, we focus on this thing and sometimes call it a legacy, but it's really a legend. You know, what do we want people to remember about us when we're gone? That's a legend. But it's what people will remember about God because we lived is what the real legacy is. And as we break down these scriptures and what God is telling us here, and look at the generations here. And the very first one is, think of it this way, we're the first generation. Start with us in this scripture, right? We can go back to our heritage and our families, but just say this right now, the word is alive, it's living, it's for us. We're the first generation. God's commanding us. Whether you're sitting here single, married, family, we all have a responsibility in this in families of faith. We're all in this together. And so we look at this. We're the first, and God commands us to teach our own children. So when we look at this, he gives us very clear things, but we're not just teaching them and commanding them, you know, this, but to teach our children. And then the second generation is our children. And they're to teach our grandchildren. That's the third generation. So we start in this very first, we get the first is us, then our children, our grandchildren. And it goes from there, and then the next one is, and we don't know how many generations for sure, because it doesn't say the very next generation, right? It simply says, even generations yet to be born, they in turn will tell or teach their children. So when we, we take the magnitude of this, we start, here we are. I'm standing here in this place representing all of us. We're this generation that has the responsibility today to teach our children. And you say, well, I'm single or I'm not married or I don't have any. This I said, oh, wait a minute. Just be here next week. Stand in the atrium because those are the children that we're to teach. But we're not just to teach them in such a way that they're good students, but we're raising up a generation of teachers because then they've got to teach this generation, right? And then it goes on to say, even the generations yet to be born, they're going to arise and they're going to teach their generations. And then God tells us exactly what it is. He says at the end of this, right, he says, so each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles, and obeying his commands. You see, God tells us very clearly three things there to teach. Three things. He says we're to teach them to trust, remember, and obey the living God. Now, i got to tell you, it's hard to teach them something we're not doing and living, isn't it? And there's people in here, you're struggling right now with just trusting God with things that have gone on and that have happened. And sometimes we struggle to remember the great things in the stories. But God calls us to do that. And then to obey. So to trust, remember, and obey the living God. That's what God's calling us to here. And the very concept of this is different than the methods that we use for teaching. Because you see, we're so used to the teaching of the secular world that what it does is, is we just got to pass them through this grade. And we do that. And let me just tell you what's happened to education in our nation here. It's not a condemnation on any of the schools or anything. I'm just going to tell you, here's what's happened. Schools started off with Sunday schools because people worked, and that's where they got to go to school. That was it. 
That's where they were taught. They came to church on Sunday because it was the only time there because they worked. And so the public sector took their leaning from the churches. But then all of a sudden that flipped. We can take you back historically to the father of public education with Thomas Dewey and all the things there. But all of a sudden what happened was the public sector took this on and we teach in our churches the way they teach in the schools. What do I mean? We segregate them by classes. We can take you back to a lot of reasons for that and why that's happened, right? All of these things. But here's the other thing. We find ourselves in the same trap that you, that schools find, that it's a question of my job is to get them through this grade that I'm teaching. I pass them. Then they've gone on. I've done my job, right? But you see, what God is telling us here is totally different than that. It's not about getting them to pass here. I finished this season. They did it. No. See, we look at this, and a lot of people say, I just want to raise good teenagers. I just want to raise good kids. No, we got to raise the great teachers for the next generation and giving them opportunities for their gifts to explode. And we say, well, you know, that's a lot, isn't it? I go, yeah, it really is. You know what it's like? It's like God saying to this, you know, you get through and you look at him and you go, you know, we got a great young man here. Mom's done her job. Boom. We got this. And God says, no, not, not, not quite so fast on that. Let's see what Cooper teaches his kids when he's married. And you go, look, I can't be totally in control of that. I look at this and Billy and I have got five in Nebraska. We got three living in Virginia. You talk about out of control family. Grandkids should live within at least 30 minutes of their grandparents until they're like 25. You know, I didn't pull that off very well. Okay. But the idea, and then God says, but no, mom, you're not done yet. Here's what we want to know. When you're even gone, what is even generations yet to be born going to be teaching because you are a follower of Christ and here today with your son? And we could go down through every family, couldn't we? That's a tough one, isn't it? But you know, isn't that what God says in the Scriptures to us? That we're to teach them to teach us for that reason there. So we've got to focus here, not raising good kids, but we've got to focus on raising the next generation of godly teachers and so forth. Here's what God is telling us. And it's not just memorizing Scripture. And I'm a fan of memorizing Scripture. I believe in it, right? But we've got to focus on equipping and training, empowering, releasing our children and our children's children. I know that sounds crazy, isn't it? But you know what? Life's messy. And we're going to do that. And we're going to raise up children. And we're going to equip them. And we're going to empower them. But we're all going to be in this thing together, right? But the children, our children's children, to be godly teachers of the next generation, not just good students. This is what we've got to work on here together. You know, it's uh, our son, Courtney. Um, he, we have two sons. I'll tell you two stories here. But it's this idea of what we're raising up. And sometimes we major on the minors. You know what I'm saying? We look at them and dress just right or this or that. We do this in churches. Somebody walks in and they don't dress like us or look. And there's our, you know. We were at Grace Community Church with the founding pastor, and this is Chad, Bed and Courtney, but founding pastor, we were sitting right over in this section here. Revival was going on. We remember it. So we're here in between our sons, and the one son, his, you know, when you got the emails with AOL, you used to be able to get five and one family get it. His email was the good son. And I believed it because he dressed like dad. We went to church. We had a nice shirt on. Most of the time we had a tie on back in then. I got to tell you, we look good. I'd look over at that kid. I'd raise my hands. He'd raise his hands. I'd go, that's the boy I'm raising right there. You got that? Now, the boy my wife was raising was different. That was Chad. 
Chad's standing down there. He's got a pair of jeans on. Now, my wife always makes these shoes and says, well, he just drove in from college. It doesn't matter. He wasn't dressed like me. He could have changed in the car. He's got jeans on. I don't even know if they had holes in them. He had a T-shirt on. Look, I know it didn't say this, but this is what it felt like to Dad. It felt like a Budweiser T-shirt in church. And I'm sitting there looking at this kid going, how did Mom miss it with you? you got to be kidding me. And I'm looking over at her, and I'm looking back, and I'm going, then I get to see the good son. He's dressed like Dad, raising his hands. I turn my head for a moment, and the blue jean Budweiser shirt is laying on the floor in worship, crying out to God. God just kind of slapped me around pretty hard. And he's done that regularly. Don't think that was the only time, and I got it, and now I'm perfect. Uh, that's kind of Monday morning. Any day that ends in Y, I have a tendency to get slapped around by God a little bit. He's the one that became a pastor. He's the one that, when I talk to you about 40 years, he's the one that educated me on numbers. He's the one that teaches me, and we just sit in these conversations. He was the kid in the blue jeans and the Budweiser t-shirt. The good son, he's still the good son, okay? But I learned an awful lot that to follow Christ, you don't have to look like me. In fact, that's probably going to be a detriment to you at times, okay? But that, but here's the other one. Courtney, the younger one, we were riding along one day, and I think he was about 15, and I told him something that I thought would be very helpful to him in his life, like a dad would do for a son. We do this. He looked at me, and a son, once they hit 15 or so, they kind of roll their eyes when they think they've heard it before. We're getting a nod here. We know what we got. And I looked at him, and I said, Courtney, have I told you that before? And he goes, yes, Dad, many times. I said, but did you think that was for you? He looked at me, and he does this number. You get this. He looks here, and he looks around the car. He checks back to make me know that we're the only ones in the car, right? And he goes, yeah. I said, no, Courtney. You quit listening to me a long time ago. You know that. I know that. We're both good for that right now. We are. I said, but that wasn't for you. That was for my grandkids. And the only way I have to teach my grandkids right now is to give you everything I want to make sure you teach them. He was 15. I can't tell you the number of times since then that I've had an encouraging word. I put it that way. He doesn't. But it's an encouraging word. And he'll look at me and he goes, so tell me, Dad, is that for me or your grandkids? I tell him, use it where it's most needed. <laughs> okay. So, but the bottom line is, right, that, that we go through this, and this idea, even in our own families, it gets messy. I want to tell you that, you know, this idea that encouraging our kids to, to memorize Scripture, and we give them a prize for that. Okay, look, you're going to have to listen to me carefully so you don't sit here and get the wrong idea that I'm saying, no, don't do that. I'm saying it's okay. But we know the best way for kids to memorize Scripture is two things besides getting a piece of candy. One is they turn and teach it to somebody else. Their comprehension of a Scripture or anything grows significantly, not when they learn it and repeat it back, but when they repeat it and teach somebody else. So we got to give them that opportunity because it's for them too. That's one there. And you know where it really makes sense in a Scripture? It's when they look around this church and they see it lived out in our lives. When they see us living on Monday at home, the same way they thought they saw us on Sunday at church. You got that? See, those are the two most important factors we have to teach the generations is, are we living it out in our life, and are we giving them a chance to teach it? And you say, what's an eight-year-old going to teach? Well, they're going to teach a six-year-old a Scripture, and they're going to learn from being in here with us, and we're going to raise strong families of faith that God is calling us to do in this church. I've got a good friend I was texting back and forth with him yesterday. 
I have no idea what time the game is. Dalton's uh, starting uh, offensive lineman for the Broncos. Dalton grew up, Dalton Reisner grew up in Wiggins, Nebraska. He played for a 1A school and went to a D1 big-time school, and then he gets drafted very, very high with the Broncos. But his senior year in high school, he was injured. He didn't get to play football his senior year in high school and still got picked up on a scholarship to go to K-State. But he said he went to youth group every night, came from a good family. Wiggins is a town of about three, I guess. I don't know, four, something like that. But in any event, he would go to church, he would go to youth group on Wednesday night. And Dalton said, Chuck, he says, I'm six foot six, 280 in high school. And the reason youth group was so good for me is for every verse I memorized during the week and could recite on Wednesday, I got a piece of pizza. He says, at 6'6", 280, I ate before I got there. I memorized scriptures and ate pizza, and then I ate when I got home. That was just my world right there. But he said, I didn't know how to live it out. And I want to emphasize again, Dalton came from a great family, okay? But what happened was, when he went to college, he met an older guy. We can use words like disciple, mentor, and this and that. But you know what this guy did? He did life with him to help him understand how to live out his faith where he lived, worked, and played. He did life with him so he could see what it meant to actually be a Christian and live it out as a football player at a major college, but everything that God was doing inside of him. Dalton's been given an amazing platform there. He, uh, he started a foundation. It's called Reisner Up. And you can go on. It's on his website, just Reisner Up, his last name up. But here's what he displays on the purpose of his foundation prominently displayed. You go to that website, and as you scroll through the pages, this is what you're going to see over and over again. This is his mission statement. A positive impact by spreading God's Word through love and kindness. And look, Dalton's one of those with the NFL guys. He's got more tattoos than I got skin. Big guy, but you know, I'm not tiny, but he's got all of these tattoos. All of them are scriptures. All of them mean things. You know what? It doesn't matter how I feel about for or against tattoos. All I know is this is, I don't think any of us going to make heaven anyway, so might as well get used to it. And if it's helping somebody else come to Christ, you know, I, I'm okay with that right now. But here's the thing with Dalton. Everything he does is a platform that God has given him, and he knows that football is a short gig. When you're playing in the NFL, yeah, I know we got Tom Brady that's paid. He's played for, what, 83 years or something? Okay, something like that. I, I don't know. But for most players, it's a shorter gig. And he knows that God has given him a platform, and he's preparing him for other things, and the other things are to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to tell you, Dalton was given that platform because of an ability to play football. Being 300 pounds doesn't hurt. But you've got a platform. Do you know that? Each one of you have a platform that God has given you. Each one of you wants you to use, each one of you, God wants you to use that platform to proclaim the name of Jesus. You say, well, Chuck, I don't preach. That's not my gift. No, your life proclaims the name of Jesus Christ. That's what God wants. Does your life on the platform he's given you in the workplace or at school or someplace else, is it saying to people that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? 
Everything that you're sitting here, and we're on a Sunday, we say this scripture here and this scripture here, is it being lived out in the other days that end in Y, or just on Sunday because we feel good? I believe that God wants you to use your platform to impact, and you don't even know who all is going to be involved in this when you're there with your platform. And whether you're a student here today, young man, young couple, it doesn't matter, older, here we are, God has given us a platform. And it's not by accident that God wants us to use that. And so when we go through this process here, you know, that platform isn't just for us to teach, but it's, look, but if we are not taught and do not teach others how to apply their faith and give them the opportunity to teach others, Scripture verses can become more mere words that we toss out as conversation pieces. That's a terrible way to use God's Word, isn't it? That we have these things that we just kind of toss them out periodically in a conversation because they might fit in there. But my suggestion to you is, is examine every scripture that you use and ask yourself like I have to do, and I don't do well at it at times. I don't. But does that scripture apply to my life as much as I'm telling somebody else to use it? Because that's what's going to impact generations and even generations yet to be born. That's the power of those and the lives that we're in. I'm going to... uh, I have all of this in notes, but I think I can tell you without notes. It's much how much has been written on me. About 20 years ago, I was in southern Louisiana. I got invited to speak at a pastor's luncheon. There was 15 pastors there, 16 pastors. We were introducing ourselves to each other, and as I shook hands and met a pastor, there was this feeling, and you could just, just feel and see God's presence all over this guy. He was shorter than I was, pastor to church I never heard of. Didn't even know until I met him the guy's name, never heard of him. His church was about 70 people. This guy's name was Gus Rodrig, a little more common in Louisiana than it is here in Denver. But as I shook this man's hand, and have you ever had that feeling that you shake somebody's hand and you have this, it's almost like electricity going through and you see this with them. And you just knew that there was something so very, very special about this man. And I'm standing there and I'm trying to get a grasp of this. So I sat down with him as we ate and as we sat down, he told me that the day before he had buried his mother. And I'm there thinking that very next day, here he is, at a pastor's meeting for lunch. And he told me that when he did that in his voice, there was no pain there. There was this joy. And I said, I'm, you got to tell me about this. Tell me about the funeral. You tell a lot about a family by how they celebrate the key things in life, and even a funeral, celebration of life. You find out an awful lot about the family that way, don't we? And he said... Uh, the wake had begun two nights earlier, very common in the South, and that, and it was at the house, and that's where she was at till she passed. And then during the wake, he said 14 pastors were there at the moment of her passing. All that had been involved in his mom and dad's life and their family's life, 14 pastors had been there. And he said they were there with the entire family. I said, the entire family? And they all gathered. He says, yeah, mom and dad had... In my notes, 21 children, 17 of which were still living. 
at the time, 20 years ago, there were 43 grandchildren and 51 great-grandchildren. And then he made a casual statement. I didn't ask for it. He looked at me and he said this so simply, you know the funny part? I'll let you read it. They're all in ministry. Seventeen kids, forty-three grandkids, fifty-one, fifty-seven, whatever the number was, fifty-one great-grandchildren. And I looked at him and I said, so you mean all you children, seventeen? He goes, yeah, all the children, but not just my brothers and sisters, all of us. I said, you mean the grandchildren too? He goes, yeah. And before I could ask another silly question, he says, and all the grandchildren too, and the great-grandchildren, all of them. So here's what you get. 111 plus spouses, 17 children, 43 grandchildren, 51 great-grandchildren, all of them there together for the passing of the mother. The father had passed away many years earlier. 111 plus spouses, the 14 pastors, all there at that time. I don't know if that's overwhelming for you, but that's incredibly overwhelming for me to think in the terms of that, this little family. And then I, I couldn't get it again. I said, so I couldn't get over this fact they were all in ministry. So I asked him every single one of them, and he goes as if you know he's ordering a pizza, something so casually. And he says, absolutely, from pastors to missionaries to evangelists, and all of the younger children are already involved with their parents in ministry. I said, how can you, how can you explain this? Was your dad in ministry? Was he a pastor? Was he a missionary? I'll let you read this. His mom and dad were vegetable farmers who had 21 kids, 17 were still living. They were vegetable farmers. And I'm sitting there as he tells me this, and I'm trying to wrap my head around the impact for generations yet to be born of a man and a wife that were vegetable farmers. I said, how did that happen? What can you tell me about that? Gus looked at me and he said, Chuck, he says, I, I think it's because as kids, we saw the faith of our father lived out. We saw what he valued. And he valued the church. He valued pastors. He valued ministry. He valued serving God. He says, I guess because my dad lived out his faith like that, and we all got to see it in his life, not just at church on Sunday, but every day. We got to see it in his life. He says, you think of it as a kid, when your parents value something so much, it automatically draws you into that. And he said, so all of us grew up in the church, serving in the church, and the entire family serving now still. I said, so what do you mean you saw it? I mean, you got to get, you know, put this in. He says, well, he says, my, my dad and mom with the vegetables and all of us kids, on Saturday, he would have to take all the vegetables to the market. That was our income. We were vegetable farmers. 
He said, but before he loaded up in a wagon drawn by horses to go into the market, he had paper bags. And in those paper bags, there was the exact number of bags for the number of pastors that lived along the route getting to the market. Regardless of the weather, Dad would stop the wagon right in front of a pastor's house. One of us kids that was riding that day would run and put a bag of vegetables right there. And then we would get back in the wagon because we had to get to the market to set up early in the morning. And I'm still kind of reeling off of this. I'm going, that's incredible. He goes, but then, okay, we would sell all of our vegetables, but we didn't have fruit, so we bought fruit and things there. He says, and Dad had the exact number of bags to fill with fruit, not just for our family, but to leave a bag at every pastor's house every Saturday morning on the way back. He said, for as long as he could remember, all of his life, all of his dad's life, that's what he remembered on Saturday, was his father's faith that was lived out during the week. But what he valued, and he says, I guess that's why we're there. So 111 family members and their spouses, all serving the Lord, generations yet to be born, because one vegetable farmer led his life truly showed what he valued, a vegetable farmer. As I sit here with all of us, as I was praying this morning, last night, got here early and was sitting there, I'm going, for the ones that sit here and go, but Chuck, I'm not sure I have a platform. I'm not sure God can use me. Could I ask you just to think for a moment, if God can do that with a vegetable farmer in South Louisiana, Oh my goodness, what great plans does He have for you? What great plans does He have for us in this church as families of faith? This was a father that didn't care about what people remembered about him after he died. He didn't focus on that. He focused on what would people remember about God because he lived. Now I know there's some in here struggling too, because you go, boy, that's a legacy, but I didn't have that. My wife grew up in a family of faith. She was in church long before she was born. And every time there was a church or a revival in Kentucky going on, she was there with her family. My family wasn't like that. So I know there's people sitting in here, and it reminds me again of a man as I was teaching in Chicago. What happened was we were talking just about this subject, and I could see him breaking down, and there were tears. And you have that moment where his wife leans over and she's kind of consoling him, and I just stopped. I said, the most important thing we're doing right now is we've just got to deal with this right here. And I said, can you tell me what's going on? He said, I didn't have that family. He said simply this, I'm the first Christian in my family. To my knowledge, there's been none before me. My dad didn't come to know the Lord till a month before his 70th birthday. So we have the story. I asked him then to read Psalm 78, verse 8. Psalm 78, verse 8 is this. Now remember, God's just said He's commanded us to do these things, which will reach even generations yet to be born. But then He follows it up with this. That generation there would not be like their ancestors, stubborn, rebellious, unfaithful, refusing to give God their hearts to God. And I told the man then, and this applies to each one of us, I don't know all of your backgrounds, 
I don't know how you came to faith. I don't know your family. But you're here today, and God's got you here today for a reason. And it's not an accident. But here's what I told that man. You get a choice. That's what God was giving him, was a choice. You get to be a Psalm 78, 5 through 7, and say, I'm investing in this generation to invest in the next generation and the next. Or we can sit back and say, we're Psalm 78, 8. Stubborn, rebellious, don't know the Lord. That's not us, saints. That's not why you're here today. That's not why God brought you here today. Whether this is your home church or your... That's not why God brought you here today. So we can take that and put it back. And when he saw that, the face and what he saw, and I said, you get your choice there. This is what you get to do. And he says he's decided to be. Psalm 78, 5 through 7. I want to take you to one more story. Generations. I participate in something called 365 Christian Men. It's a, it's a great ministry. It's just an app you can get. Go to 365 Christian Men. They're working on 365 Christian Women too. That'll be, but every day there's a devotion, about six or seven minutes long. I got to narrate about 70 of these. And then through the time frame each month, there are some of those I just do a challenge on you. On Friday, I re-listened to the one for Saturday. And Billy actually, we sat in the car and I did a challenge, about 60 seconds, 60, 70 seconds on this. But the story is about a man who is responsible for over 78 million people coming to know Christ. That's a pretty big number, just guessing. 78 million people. As I listened to the story and I walked through it again over, the story wasn't about that man in my mind. That's not where it began. Oh, yeah, he was faithful. 78 million people. Come on, that's big. But here's where the story starts. In 1917, a man named Louis Graff, a German, was in the United States. He went to the Azusa Revival. God lit him up like a torch. He spent the next couple of years saying, I have to get the word of Jesus Christ to my homeland. Germany in 1917. He's driving a wealthy businessman, a Mercedes. He ends up in a little town. He is lost as a goose in a snowstorm. There was no Google GPS on this one. Finally, he's sitting there trying to figure out where he's at and looking at signs, and the baker comes out. And it's one of those, you ain't from here, are you? You know, kind of thing. And he introduces himself, and he says, no, I'm, I'm here. I'm looking for this town. The guy says, you're way off. And Lewis said, well, God doesn't make mistakes. While I'm here, is there anybody in this town that's sick that I can pray for? Who does that in 1917? And the guy's standing there, and in that moment, there's this loud, curdling kind of scream of pain coming from a place across the street. And he asked him, he says, who is that? He said, well, that's August Monkey." He said, would you ask if I can pray with him? Guy's in town by mistake. We know God always makes mistakes, right? And he sends a kid on a bicycle to August Monkey's house and he says, hey, there's a guy out here that says he wants to pray for you. Every doctor had tried to help him, nothing had worked. He's in pain, rarely gets out of bed. And so he comes back and he says, sure. He says, the guy says, you can come and pray with him. Yeah, what else? August Monkey is in bed and in pain. And Louis Graff comes up and begins to pray for him. And as he prays for him, Louis Monkey sits, or, uh, August Monkey sits up. And then he turns around, he sits again as he's praying, he sits on the edge of the bed, and then he stands up and he realizes the pain is gone. Years of pain. And he gave his life to Christ. I told you, Reinhard Bonnke, oh, that's a great story. But Lewis Graff is a businessman that just says, I want to get the word of Jesus here. 
praise over a man who's been in pain for years, who accepts Christ and changes his life to walk a life of faith. Oh, but he's not done. Because you see, August had a son named Herman. Herman Bonke sees what happens to his dad, puts his trust in Jesus Christ. Now get this, 1917, for generations yet to be born, 15 years after Lewis Graff prayed over August Bonke, a young boy was born in that same little town. His name was Reinhard Bonke. And the foundation of faith that had been put in by Lewis Graff into his grandfather and into his father, and every day of his life he saw it lived out in their lives. He knew he had to do something for Jesus. And Reinhard Bonnke went to Africa and country after country, did these massive revivals, and he would bring people up to speak, and 78 million people is the best number they can come up with, because Lewis Graff prayed over a man that was sick because he thought he was in a town and lost when God had him right where he was supposed to be. And I ask in that challenge, who is it you're supposed to be praying for? Are you wanting the results right then, or are you trusting God for other generations yet to be born? I realize these are all stories and I've used men in them. I look at these amazing ladies sitting here. My wife and I can go right on down through. Ladies, this applies to you just as much as that. It just happened to be those were the stories that God had impacted me and kind of beat me up with a little bit. But I want you to know you're just as much a part of this in God's plan as any guy sitting here. We're co-equals in this, co-equals, not over you. And there's a reason we're here together. You know, it. Uh, I said last week, God wants his story to become part of your story. So for an eternity, your story will be part of his story. I want to change that up a little bit this time for us. And it's simply this, God wants his story to become part of your family's story. And some of you here said, well, Chuck, I don't really have family here. Oh yeah, look around, we're your family. Guess what, come next Sunday, it's gonna be messy next Sunday. I know it is. I got grandkids, okay? But this is how we raise families of faith. God wants his story to become part of your family's story so that your family's story, including generations yet to be born, will echo in eternity and be part of his story. I know so many of the families here, you're doing that. But I know this, there's a great task ahead of us, isn't there? And God has us here to do this together. God has us here as a family of faith to do that. I, um, I just want to tell you again next week, I'm really excited about that. I am. I'm, I'm so excited because I believe God is calling Summit Church to be an intergenerational, intercultural family of faith. That means as a church, but within that, all of our families of faith. Whether you're here single, married, family, all of the different combinations, God has you here in a family of faith. And we're gonna work so hard. We're gonna work so hard to equip you, to prepare you, to take your faith and live it out where you live, work, and play. Because isn't that where it really matters? Oh, we can do what we wanna do on Sunday. But isn't it what matters is the rest of the days that end in why? because that's what's going to change a world. That's what's going to change our worlds. We've got an opportunity 
next week, and it's going to be messy. I'm telling you now, but I'm, I'm, I'm begging you, please be here. We need to do this together. We're going to go in now to our time of response. Let me tell you what this is going to look like. Just real simple. We have our prayer team on both sides that are there. There's communion available. There's chairs for us to sit in and pray. Would you sit back there? The cross is there. There's already some concerns or prayer needs there. Nail nail something to the cross. Jesus said on the cross like that, it is finished. But here's our encouragement to you. Whatever God is stirring in your heart, whatever God is speaking to you, He's going to tell you how to respond to that. And if that's get up and pray, if that's go sit down, if that's go take communion or go to the cross. But this is the time for us to respond with what God is telling us. And I want to encourage you to do that and remind you, you're not here by accident. You're here for a reason. God's got you here. Don't miss your God moment if God's calling you to respond. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we love you, Lord. We do praise you. Father, to come here in a family of faith, to be here, Father, in your presence, but to hear, Father, that through your word, as you spoke to us for generations yet to be born. Father, we ask you to do that in us. Have your way, Father. Do that in us that we may represent you well as your sons and daughters. And we ask all of this in the mighty, precious name of our Lord and Savior. And all of God's family said, Amen. Thank you.